Hey, it's Greg Brady heading into a long weekend. We hope you enjoyed today's Bill Kelly Show podcast. On the last day of July, the 31st, show open. We got into it and talked about the two big issues, of course, uh, that being Justin Trudeau's testimony uh, with the We charity scandal and as well schools and the plan for Ontario, how different they look, high school and elementary. We didn't know that would necessarily be the case. A hybrid model for high school students and, of course, Class for elementary students, five days a week. And the mask policy seemed to be one that tripped a few parents up. Masks will not be mandatory for kindergarten kids up to grade three. They're mandatory for grades four through eight. We'll talk about whether parents are happy about that or not with Monique Taylor, Hamilton NDP MPP. She's got reaction not at all pleased with the government's plan that they laid out. Neither is the president of the OSSTF, Harvey Bischoff. He will join me uh, to discuss as well. It's been rather contentious in the last year and a half between teachers' unions and the provincial government. Did they do anything well yesterday, according to Harvey? And we'll find out what some of his main criticisms are. And also Richard Painter, as we go south of the border, is this election all but wrapped up for Joe Biden? And who is going to be Joe Biden's running mate? And should there be concerns? I want to get into whether or not Kamala Harris, senator from California, is in the lead seat to become Joe Biden's vice president and why there are people in Biden's inner circle who don't want her. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The August long weekend. You know, they called it Simcoe Day in Toronto. And those Toronto folks think they run everything in Canada. I'm so tired of those Toronto people. And they named it in honor of uh, John Graves Simcoe. We got to, yeah, we got to check into his past a little bit. Actually, he would seem like a pretty good dude. I don't know if we had any good dudes back then whatsoever. You know, you come across a guy and you're like, that was a pretty good guy. I don't think we can do any of that with anyone who lived in the 18th century. I don't think we can. I can I, I'm not sure we can do it with anybody who lived in 1940. Sure was a great guy. Had some very progressive views. Really believed in the equality of all human beings. Yeah, that's that. That's not very many. Well, men probably white men in 1940 and i'm not a uh, you know i don't i don't make any apologies for being uh, white i i i you know i'm i'm proud of my heritage can i can i say that so it's simcoe day in toronto it's uh ottawa's got a terrible name colonel by day lieutenant colonel john by was an english military engineer so i guess he was smart you know there's all those engineering students with their leather jackets showing off at university uh, he supervised the construction of the Rideau Canal. So I guess he knew what he was doing. Um, had to have some semblance of the idea that the water would keep flowing. It's not like when you build a sandcastle and you're like, this will work. We'll make it go right to the lake. It dries up. That's part of the, the humidity. And, of course, in Hamilton, it's George Hamilton Day. George Hamilton Day, he, was a, uh, he founded the city of Hamilton. You know this already if you're in Hamilton. I don't know what they call it in London. Um, Guelph has a different name for what the Monday holiday is. Uh, Alexander McKenzie Day in Sarnia. Shouts to Sarnia for a second straight day on the show. And in Guelph, they give uh, Galt, John Galt, uh, a day in particular. Um, so that's, you know, that's something. It's known as our civic holiday. We do have a long weekend. Hamilton is not named after the actor George Hamilton. Now, there were some movies, right? There was, he's always tanned. Okay, you've seen him. Uh, he was in movies uh, such as The Godfather Part Three, Love at First Bite. I think he played a vampire in that. And uh, 1981's 
Zorro, the gay blade. I don't know. It's described as sexy, zany, sensational. I, alliteration. I get it. It was meant to be like a tongue-in-cheek sequel to all those Zorro movies. Um, who made it? Isn't that where, uh, that's where, um, what's his name, met his wife? Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones? No, no, she made that with, uh, was it Antonio Banderas? I know she's married to Michael Douglas, who we do not name a day after. Um, I, I'm going to I'm gonna pick a, like Whitby should name Monday just after Michael Douglas. He's made so many good films. I know he's American, but we have a three-day holiday, and we really shouldn't uh, give a rip. So uh, Hamilton's already in stage three. London's already in stage three. But our friends from Toronto and Peel are joining us in uh, stage three today. Golf clap. That's good. Welcome. And there's all these stories. And you're going to do news stories about the opening stages, right? Like, are people going to go to movies? What's it like having a gym workout now? I'm dying to find out. I am. I uh, Again, my, my treadmill was probably, you know, my BFF. Um, sure, your kids mean something to you, but uh, the, the Woodway treadmills at uh, Lifetime Fitness, I don't know. They never let me down. They never kept me up late at night. They give me what I need every single day. But there's not a lot of, you know, emotional anxiety about the treadmills. Kids, yeah, lots of it. But we should welcome our our Toronto and Peel friends. Now, I heard this driving in today. I drive in and I turn the radio on. And I'm like, what's going on in the world? What's happening in our universe? And then let's localize the universe. And I hear uh, I hear that uh, uh, it's an exciting time for club goers. And I'm going, like, let's, like, club goers? Club goers? Who are... Who are club goers? Those don't, do those exist? We got, honestly, are, do people still go out? Are they going to go out? Are they stage three going outing? Like Night at the Roxbury style? Like the Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan thing? The Saturday Night Live sketch? First of all, they shouldn't be in the car that close together. That's one thing. Secondly, I don't... They probably don't play that song as much in uh, in clubs anymore. Maybe they don't. Maybe they do. Maybe it's a bit of a joke. I don't think it's... I think there's older people right now going, what the hell is this? And there's younger people going, um, ah, it's, come on, dad joke. It's pretty lame to reference the 1993 hit uh, Hathaway's What is Love. They play more modern stuff in clubs. There was one rave I wanted to go to. There's a DJ I like called Eric Prides. And uh, I figured I'd be the... He, he was able to like put a bunch of people into Rogers Center for like a like a DJ show. Because these are big things now, the DJ shows, right? And I was going to go um, to Rogers Center to see him. I probably would have gone alone. And uh, I just figured, God, I'm going to be the, you know, I think I was like 42, 43 when he came there a few years ago. And I'm like, I'm going to be the oldest person there. Like, I'm going to be the only person. I got to, should I dye my hair? There's There's those silver things on the side. Should I get rid of those things? Either way, it is stage three. The clubs have reopened. <laughs> All the best if you're going club. Please don't go clubbing. Please don't. We have kids that we want to see go to school, and we're going to – there's just the two big stories, really. It's just the two big stories, right? Schools in Ontario, for you, for me, we've talked about it yesterday. It affects – it doesn't affect so few people. Ergo, it affects so, so many of us that will get there. And we're going to talk a lot about it. Harvey Bischoff's going to join me, uh, OSSTF president. He got name-checked by the premier yesterday. That happens from time to time. Uh, those two have, um, what do you call it, history? So we'll talk to Harvey before uh, before 
10 a.m. this morning, and we'll talk a ton about the Trudeau testimony yesterday. I was I was obsessed. I was fixated. I, I couldn't get enough of it. It didn't last long enough for me. Um, the prime minister does know he can get a haircut now, but it's not stopping him. Uh, the horse, there was somebody riding a horse on a soapstone, not really, like riding by his window, but if you looked in the background, there were no horses of any kind, but there's a guy, there's a carving of a horse over Justin Trudeau's left shoulder, which again, the shoulder's almost entirely obscured uh, by his hair. I don't know who had the best hair before this, like in my lifetime as prime minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, like if we really do this, Pierre Elliott Trudeau went with the comb over, right? He was sort of like more swoop. Um, Joe Clark, it looked, it looked like a bit of a, it looked like a bit of a rug. I'm going to say that it did. Um, who had good Mulroney's hair was very slicked down. Uh, what a surprise given the slickness of, um, of some of their family members. And, uh, who else have we got? John Turner, John Turner might've had the best hair before Trudeau in all honesty. In all honesty, I think he could have spiked it up even a little bit. He didn't become prime minister until he was 75. But I I feel like he could have I feel like he could have pulled it off a little bit. You know, I'm being really unfair to to Kim Campbell. Like that's she probably did do the most with with a prime minister's hair. Problem is she only did it for like 3 months before before she got trounced in the election. That was a uh big kicking in the pants for Kim Campbell. So we'll talk about the, uh, the schools in Ontario. We'll talk about um, Justin Trudeau and the testimony yesterday and uh, who it may, may have made stars of. I wish it was happening again today. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Although I'll admit, I have liberal friends. I have people who are staunch liberals. And they just had that ill feeling about it. They're like, here we go. Here we go again. No questions will get answered. Um we're going to get to Money Taylor, Hamilton NDP, MPP. I want her to be able to react to the school year plans yesterday. Elementary students, they're all headed back to class. It's a lot of concerned parents. But were we going to be concerned anyway? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Schools in about a month. Yeah, a lot of parents. I, I heard from a lot of parents last night who have kids in the same grade as me. And... Um, Boy, I, I was feeling more confident, and they talked my confidence down a little bit. I will say one thing really quick before we get to Monique. I, I thought I spotted it, and a few other people spotted it too. Um, D- Dr. Yaffe, I, I don't understand. Um, I have great respect for her uh, medical acumen, but um, she mentioned positive, false positive tests and mentioned in, in the briefing, I watched the whole thing, and double and I doubled back. I PBR'd it back to make sure right right when it happened to make sure I heard her right. She said if there's a fifty percent false positive rate. No, not even not even close. Not in the same universe. So I think that was in response to the question about why don't we test high, why don't we test teachers? Why don't we test teachers once a week? It's a lot more practical than te- te- testing kids. If I'm a teacher, I want to get tested. I'd love for that to be provided for me. Um, but that's not that's not true. 50%, and I've heard people make the excuse, well, I didn't get a test because there's such a high false positive rate. That's not a good excuse, especially if you're going to, you know, take some chances and step out there a little bit. We said it yesterday on the show. There's no safe or unsafe anymore. There's just there's just relative risk, okay? You've got to decide what risk is okay for you, okay for your kids, okay for your parents, 
And uh, a lot of parents are d- determining that right now. I'm very pleased to welcome in uh, NDP MPP for uh, Hamilton Mountain. Uh, she is Monique Taylor. Monique, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I hope you're well. I'm great. Um, I, uh, what were your What were your observations? I made a distinction between high school and elementary school. Um, is there one part of the plan for either the grade nines to twelves or the the kindergartens to eights? And you say. I've got less problem with this particular plan than the other. Well, unfortunately, I think they both have problems, right? Um, I, I mean, putting too many kids in a classroom is not a good idea, as we all know. And um, putting the older students, the high school students, online without that one-on-one learning is also going to create a problem. So I don't think there's anything um, that parents were looking for in this plan, and I think uh, that it really does let families down. The masks. Um, there are U.S. states. There are U.S. states run by Republican governors that are going to make masks mandatory uh, for kids kindergarten and up. Here in Ontario, we aren't doing that. That's the first thing that leaped off the page to me. I've heard it said, oh, a six-year-old can't have a mask on all day. Of course they can't have it on all day. They're going to eat. They're going to drink. Um, but I, I was disappointed because even when we've seen municipalities, Monique, make masks mandatory, uh, of course there's no enforcement per se, but more more people get with the program. And I'm a little concerned that that, that, wasn't, that was just left hanging out there yesterday. You know, I'm not sure what the right solution is because I know that there would be problems with having masks, kids sharing masks, trading masks, dropping their masks having their mask up, sitting up on their head. I mean, that creates a whole nother issue. But what the government put out yesterday uh, with this many children in a classroom, uh, when we already had too many kids in classrooms, is just, I think, the greatest issue of all and something that we need to uh, continue to push the government to change its decision on, on their layout plan. Monty Taylor's joining us, uh, MPP for Hamilton Mountain, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show, Greg Brady in for Bill today. Um, I heard from a kindergarten teacher uh, via Twitter. She's expecting 33 kids, 33 kids in her class the day after Labor Day with minimal distancing. And her, you know, her sense to me is how are high school teachers and high school kids, which get this, they are out there. Many of them are driving. Many of them have part time jobs. They're understanding the distancing. How come they're dividing them into basically grouplets of 15 and then feeding me 33 kids every day? That was her perspective. Right. And so is this their cost-saving scheme? I mean, is this the way that they, they figured that we're going to keep our children uh, the most safe uh, by putting less dollars in? I mean, the dollars that they're offering per school uh, for extra teachers is $16,000. How, how can you add extra adults and safety precautions into a classroom with 16, or per school is $16,000? That's not near enough. So these are cost-saving measures uh, by the Ford government instead of keeping our kids safe, which they should be. It should be the number one priority right now. Are there are there methods to which the opposition party uh, of which you're a member are there methods to which you can hope uh, or convince or uh, persuade the government to tweak some of the plans, some of the red flags that you see here, and parents do see as well. Well, we've seen um, in the past that the government has changed their mind uh, with public pressure. 
So we need the public to stand up, to voice their concerns, to say that this isn't safe for their kids. Um, and when, honestly, when I've seen some of that already, what the government has said is, you don't have to send your kid to school. Well, that isn't an, an, an option for that many families, mm-hmm. right? A lot of families don't have that option. They have to go to work. They've, they're already behind uh, by being out of work all this time. And now they're, they're looking towards the government to provide that support to ensure that their kids are in a safe environment. This plan doesn't provide that for families. I know there are parents that, um, you know, have been concerned, obviously, with the debilitating conditions of schools. Some schools are obviously older older than others, um, more decrepit than others. Um, and, and the government, you know, when it was elected, it, people were concerned. They kind of laid it out there. We're going to make cuts to education. We're going to make cuts to health care. That seemed patently obvious. So when they announced funding yesterday, I know there's skepticism. Is there skepticism on your part that they say we're, we're injecting this much money in, but many say that's just money that's replacing the cuts that have been made already to education in the last two years? Absolutely. We know that there's been a lot of cuts uh, to education. And just in Hamilton alone, there's more than $300 million in backlog repairs through 100 schools. Mm -hmm. So that's just in Hamilton. So think about that uh, going across the province. Uh, and and it's and it's a dim situation. We had we had teachers on strike just for these very issues before the pandemic uh, last year, and so now now everything is just doubling down, and and we're having more kids in a classroom where it, the measures are are not even and during a pandemic, right? So uh, the the government needs to get back to the table. They need to put less kids in a classroom. They need to hire those teachers. They need to hire those custodians. That takes investment, but I think our kids are worth it. Now, the government may, may fire back and say to the NDP, say to the Liberals, where do you propose we get the money from? We can't just print off stacks of uh, you know $20 bills and $50 bills to make our schools better. Where should they divert funds from to make, make this work for you? Well, we've seen them put out, um, you know, things that help enrich their, their, their friends. Like, we watched the Liberals do the exact same thing, waste billions of dollars. You instead of wasting billions of dollars and and giving these gravy train um you know pro- programs to mm. to their to the to the well off we need to get back to basics invest in our kids education if we don't get our kids education right today what is that going to look like for our future this is the priority they are our most valuable resource they have to be the ones to get the money first. I told you, I've heard from parents, uh, my kids are going into grade 7 and grade 9, and I've heard from parents right on right on the middle of the fence. They are literally 50-50, and they've got about 12 days to decide to opt out. I don't know what kind of new info they'll have before then, so the, the call may be theirs. Have you already heard from parents of kids of different ages saying, it's not happening, I, I won't send my kids back into a crowded classroom? Absolutely. As well, I've, I've, I've truthfully been spending a lot of time on social media reading comments, and people are angry. Like, there is not many people, there may be one or two in a hundred comments uh, that are saying that this is a good program. Other ones are saying, I'm concerned, I don't know what to do about my kid. Uh, you know, I have, I have young children, I have a, a high school ch- child at the same time. Uh, this isn't going to work for my family. And then, let's talk about kids with special needs. Right. They're saying, well, you know, we'll just we'll let the kids with special needs go every day. Well, OK, but you're putting them in an awkward position and families in an awkward position to say, well, if there's an outbreak in my class, my kids vulnerable. You know, I already have issues. Yeah. How, how am I supposed to manage this? 
so I don't, I, I haven't seen uh, really anybody that is coming out in favor of this program um, saying that this is a great program for my kids. This is the right place for them to be. It, it, tr- it truly mm-hmm. has not um, been what I've seen at all. Monty Taylor uh, represents Hamilton Mountain. She's uh, NDP MPP. Thank you very much for the time and your perspective. I hope you have a great long weekend. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You too. Bye, Greg. Bye-bye. You got it. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't think there is. I, quickly, there's not a great plan. There can't be a great plan. They can't guarantee your kids' safety. They can't guarantee teachers' safety. But were there things that could have made things more safe, given parents more confidence? Sure, absolutely. But they all do cost money. We know that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring in OSSTF President uh, Harvey Bischoff, who joins me now. Harvey, Greg Brady, great to talk to you again. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Greg. Thanks. Uh, well, you got name-checked yesterday by the Premier. Uh, that's not the first time that's uh, ever happened. And he said he hadn't hadn't heard from you once. What's uh, you know what's fair? What's what's truthful about that particular statement? Well, if the Premier is going to start taking my calls, great. Um, point is, I try to work through the Minister of Education. That's the appropriate contact uh, for somebody in my position. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is getting any consultation, any meaningful consultation with the Ministry of Education. There have been dozens of meetings. They have been one-way communication, the, the Ministry telling us what they plan to do. Um, there has been not not one aspect of this reopening plan um, bears any effect from from you know uh, consultation with us. So there isn't any case where they brought us an idea and amended it on the basis of of our input. There isn't any case where they brought us a couple of options and said which one of these do you think is better, and then you know went with our suggestion. Not one iota of that. So there's been no meaningful consultation, uh, but I'll be, you know, happy to discuss it with the premier if he wishes. Can can you get, yeah, can you get time over the next month or so, or do you feel like it's too late? I would say this. I think we would have slammed. I think people who are critical of, of the government and, and Ford and, and Lecce would have slammed them had they come out with a plan June 1st. The, 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 they were obviously gathering data. We want to see what the case rates would be like. We've done a great job in Ontario. We've been hurtling over stages to get to where we are now. So I think a plan in June would have been too early. Did this plan come too late for you? Is the timing right? It's just the plan's not right. It's, it's, uh, I don't think the timing is right either. It's both too little and too late. So look, we, we started back at the end of March saying to the ministry, um, consult with us about reopening because at some point we're going to return to face-to-face learning. We don't know when that's going to be back then was, was entirely unclear. But let's start putting things in place. And those plans could have options. They could have forks in the road, depending on conditions at, at uh, particular times. Um, you know, it could be a decision tree kind of kind of plan. Um, but all of that we could have been working on much, much sooner. Um, but but they weren't. And then when they do come out with a plan, um, you know, first of all, they claim that they're listening to the to the health experts and then they turn around and ignore um, what that sick kids report of a couple of days ago called the priority strategy, which is reducing class sizes uh, in order to uh, to minimize risk. And that's not something that they turned their attention to by way of providing additional staffing, for example. Harvey Bischoff, our guest president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Foundation. Um, the, the distinction and the dichotomy between uh, high school and uh, elementary school, would you have preferred 
some kind of system that gets uh, high school kids in classrooms five days a week, or is that simply not feasible if you're going to if you're going to you know group them in groups of fifteen, which some parents, majority of parents I've spoken to, are at least relieved that they've done that and kept the and kept the groups lower that high school students will interact with over the course of a week. Yeah, I mean the the best possible solution would have been a ramping up of of uh, of staffing um, so that you know kids could. Yeah, far more face-to-face, uh, face-to-face learning uh, within reasonable size classes. Um, absent that, in those designated boards, um, at least you know the the, the program they're uh, they're proposing uh, at least does uh, mitigate risk. But bear in mind, there's a whole bunch of non-designated boards in the province where high school students will be returning to classes. Uh, in some cases, there are 30 and more students in those classes. Uh, physical distancing will be impossible under those circumstances, and I don't understand why it would be uh, allowable uh, in those uh, classrooms when it's really not allowable anywhere else in public. Here's what I think is an important question that I think parents would want to hear the answer to. Um, can can high school teachers, because that's, that's your union, can high school teachers utilize the outdoors, Harvey, uh, in September and October, at least out of the gate? Are there things that they can do in outdoor settings where we all know what the science says. We all know how much more confident we feel. Um, if they get a break with weather, are there things that teachers can do outside that they wouldn't have done a year ago at this time? Um, it's it, That's possible. Um, it requires a different kind of planning um, and potentially different kinds of resources in order to make that work. Um, and so, you know, that recommendation needed to come sooner and give the opportunity for people to, to begin putting those things in place. Because if you're going to do that, you know, early in, in the year is going to be a lot better than, than December for uh, for outdoors. Um, and in part, you know, I would leave that to the expertise of, of my membership who are uh, classroom practitioners and have a better sense uh, than, than I uh, of sort of the day-to-day practicality of what they could do. Have you heard from teachers already that say, at the high school level, that say, I, I, my choice right now, if you ask me, is not to go back. I don't feel safe. Either I have a pre-existing condition or I'm concerned about the plan. Have you heard from them already? Yeah, I mean, not quite in those words, um, but, but definitely I'm hearing increasing anxieties from both my education worker uh, and teacher members uh, because, you know, I represent members who work from, from JK to, to grade 12 in various uh, uh, roles as, you know, education assistants uh, and so forth. Uh, and so we're hearing from them. We're not talking about choice, and, some t- and sometimes we're talking about you know uh, medically imposed uh, necessities. So if you have an underlying condition, if you're immunocompromised, and you have uh, medical documentation that says the risk for you to return to uh, an in-person classroom is simply too high, um, then you know we're stu- we still need to work out how that's going to be dealt with. Is that now a, a sick leave matter? Uh, yeah. Are those people potentially working from home where they could provide online learning for students whose parents have chosen to opt them out of, of face-to-face classrooms because uh, we're going to need to assist them to, to uh, make that effective as well? Because that's the, that's the one, obviously, delay, and that's what didn't get answered yesterday. So I'll, I'll ask you, if, if a teacher, you know, it could it be contentious? Could it build up to the point of, um, you know, um, some some rancor, if you will, if, if the province thinks there are mass amounts of teachers staying home that should be working, and, and they obviously, you know, are protected and, and still want to get their paycheck? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speculate about that too much right now. I mean, we, we got the we got the the government's announcement yesterday as they were making it from the podium, and not a not a second sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we were even excluded from the technical briefing, which was held before the press conference. Unprecedented in my experience. We're always included in technical briefings of budgets and and. Uh, school board funding announcements and so forth. And for some reason, they chose to leave us out of this one. So we're still very much in the in the phase of analysis. Um, and, and you know, we don't want to see it come to the kind of rancor that you've uh, described. Uh, it's why we've offered over and over again in the most sincere way that we want to work with government in order to make this effective and safe for students and for my members. But that has been largely uh, almost entirely rebuffed so far. Last thing for you, if parents and teachers want to do something, Monty Taylor, the MPP uh, for Hamilton Mountain, was on just before you, and and she says, if parents make enough noise, maybe there could be some alterations in this plan. What would you advise teachers and parents uh, to do uh, in terms of using their voices to make a difference over the next month if they don't like what they see so far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for for uh, for parents, uh, I mean, for you know, for my members, they can work through through uh, the federation, and and we'll be doing the things that we can do. Uh, for parents, uh, yeah, contact your MPP, tell them what your concerns are. Um, join, uh, go, go online, find one of the uh, parent groups. Um, the Ontario Parent Action Network uh, is one example. Uh, parents are, have have. Uh, joined together to raise their voices around education. They've done a fantastic job, um, and they can use all the support they can get. And, and uh, so, I, you know, I, I'd encourage parents to get involved with that. Harvey, really appreciate the time. I hope you have a great long weekend. Thanks very much for spending some with me. Thanks. Same to you. Harvey Bischoff, CEO, SSTF uh, president. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We don't know if Joe Biden's getting closer to selecting a vice presidential candidate. We know the conventions are all basically done and dusted. It's not happening. We would have had a convention uh, by now, quite obviously, for the Democrats. I, it might have even been this week. Uh, it's great theater. I always enjoy all five days of it. I watched, you know, <laughs> no matter what we thought was impending or coming in 2016, uh, I watched both. I just I've watched those things every year since like I was a little kid uh, in the 80s, as a matter of fact. Uh, so it's remarkable, though, that. There's a CNBC report um, noting that some of Joe Biden's allies, some of his main donors, are alleged to be waging a what a, I guess we'd call a campaign, sort of a, a you know a shadow campaign, which sounds murkier than it is. It's just not on the record. So much is not on the record. And there's nothing wrong with that because they don't want Kamala Harris, the Democratic senator from California, to become his vice president. Now, um, is that about winning the election? Now, I don't think so. Is that about her ambition to potentially be in the catbird seat to run for president in 2024? Maybe so. Maybe so. But I don't I don't think this is a case right now about race. I don't think this is a case about sexism. I call it out when I see it. But I, I do think there are some that think other candidates potentially would be better served. Um, we had this problem with, when you know a lot of people's hearts sank when Hillary chose uh, t- you know Tim Kaine in 2016. We're like, well, that's not a very ambitious choice. So you can't have it both ways. That's a very milk toast choice. And and I think the Republican sees that moment when uh, when Tim Kaine was chosen and was just very you know just not not very inspirational. To be perfectly honest. I'm very pleased to welcome in our next guest. Great extensive political history, and right now he's professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Uh, Richard Painter joins us on the broadcast. Richard, it's Greg Brady. Thank you very much for making the time to do this today. 
Absolutely. Uh, wonderful to uh, join you. Do I have this right? Do uh, do you see that, that there's bound to be some, you know, push and pull, some give and take? And it's just natural that not 100 percent of Joe Biden's supporters or inner sanctum uh, w- would see one particular person as the best choice for vice president. How did you read that news story when it came out a couple of days ago? Well, absolutely uh, correct. There's going to always be a lot of push and pull over who the vice presidential nominee ought to be. And there are two factors. One is how much is the vice president going to help win the election? Uh, The other is who do you want to put in the uh, number two position uh, and uh, give an enormous advantage to running for president in the next cycle? And this is particularly uh, a matter of interest when we have an older uh, nominee uh, mm-hmm. on the Democratic side. Actually, we have on both sides, Trump and Biden are older. And so the uh, chances of, of, of President Biden wanting to serve not only one but two terms are, are not particularly high. So there might well be another nominee in 2024 if Biden wins the presidency this time around. It does seem more than any other president before. I mean, we weren't even having that conversation because of the, I guess, what we call the popularity of the president. But Ronald Reagan became president when he was 69, and we didn't even give it a second thought. Of course he's going to run in 1984 at 73, and he he obviously trounced Walter Mondale, only won his home state, a state you're very familiar with where you are right now in Minnesota. But I'd, I'd look and say, do we think it's a certainty, an absolute certainty that Joe Biden would not run at age 81 for a second term. Is there any circumstance in which he would run for a second term upon election? Oh, I think he could. I mean, he, he is healthy, and, and we'd see how the four years go. Uh, but I think he's, he's quite healthy, and he, he has not foreclosed that uh, option, and he could very well go for two terms. Uh, but because he's older, I think there are a lot of people sort of circling around thinking that, well, the vice presidential nominee is going to have an enormous advantage. And even if he served two terms, the vice presidential nominee would have an enormous advantage in 2028. Um, and so people are thinking about, uh, is this someone we want to be our future president or a future nominee? Is this someone who could win at the top of the ticket years down the road as well as win right now? Uh, obviously, the priority for the Democrats should be winning right now and not worry about being worried about their top their ticket in 2024, 2028. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Richard Painter is our guest, by the way, uh, from uh, a professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Um, th- this has happened throughout history. The recent example, I mentioned Reagan. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush ran against him uh, as, a, as a Republican nominee in 1980 and was was harshly critical at, at times, uh, and Reagan had a great deal of reservations about him as a running mate. Do presidential candidates, once you get the nominee, Richard, you, you got to be able to to let stuff go. You certainly have to 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 do. Bill Clinton let stuff go about Al Gore when Gore had criticized him in in 1988. Gore was more turning his his um, focus over to Michael Dukakis. Then, do you have to let a lot of stuff go? And and should Biden do that with Kamala Harris? Oh well, yes. Whoever he chooses. Uh, whether it's Harris or whoever he chooses, he needs to um, uh, make absolutely sure uh, to work with that person. Uh, I've urged uh, Elizabeth Warren because I think she's more uh, inspiring than some of the other choices in terms of policy, but uh, there are a number of very good choices. Uh, But whoever it is, they certainly have got to bury the hatchet from the presidential debate 
Smith, and it happens to be someone who was a candidate for president. Uh, that is someone like Susan Rice, who's actually worked in the Biden, Obama Biden administration, and might not pose that problem. But I, I think everybody can be grown ups here and move on and focus on winning the election uh, rather than having spats amongst themselves. Do you look at it as a, um, I, I would have said, if we'd had a conversation in November, pre-coronavirus, uh, Richard, I, I would have said, uh, I'm convinced whoever the Democratic nominee is, uh, that they win because people have pointed to the stock market as the economy. And you and I know and a lot of our intelligent listeners would know the stock market is is not a, a precursor of who's doing well and who isn't among 330 million people. But now we've got the coronavirus. Now we've got massive unemployment. Now we've got, you know, uh, just a, an unbelievably challenging era in America. And it's uh, it's a daily grind just to get through it. Would you say that the election is is not only a certainty for the Democrats and Joe Biden, but it's it's going to be a blowout election win? Never know what's happening <laughs> in the country right now. Is very much opposed to President Trump, and and I'm in that in that group. I was a Republican for 30 years. I was the chief White House ethics lawyer for President George W. Bush. I uh, certainly am not a left winger. Uh, I'm a moderate in my political mm-hmm. views. I, on either end of the one end or the other, but I think for the vast majority of Americans who aren't diehard conservatives, uh, uh, Donald Trump is unacceptable, and a lot of conservatives have turned against uh, Donald Trump, including my good friend and law school classmate George Conway, uh, who is uh, certainly getting it all, all sorts of spats with his wife Kellyanne. He gets uh, he gets some attention, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh yes, uh, George <laughs> definitely does. <laughs> Now, and, and as well, like when you lose, I've thought about that. I mean, I've watched George Will on Sunday morning TV, right, for for decades. When you lose George Will, when you lose uh, Max Boot, when you lose David Frum, you are, you. are that's a remarkable thing. So when you even say, unless you're a diehard Republican, it just feels like the party is, is getting burned to the ground, many feel, and there has to be a way. I feel bad for some of my friends who have conservative values and they just don't have anywhere to turn, not unlike four years ago, Richard, when there were Democrats that said, this is how I feel, but I cannot in good conscience go into that go into that school, go into that library, and I cannot vote for Hillary Clinton. There's obviously Republicans that say, I am a Republican, but I cannot cast a vote for this man again. Well, I would think so, and I don't know how the Republican Party got <laughs> hooked up with him, uh, how anyone who calls themselves a conservative uh, could vote for a man uh, who was well-known in New York City to be in and out of every bed in the city, and now he's in bed with Putin. Uh, and this is really uh, a flabbergasting. <laughs> act someone like Donald Trump. Uh, he's the complete opposite of a Ronald Reagan or a uh, you know Mitt Romney or John McCain, the other nominees that we've had in the Republican Party. Probably wasn't lost on you during John Lewis's funeral yesterday. Um, when Bill Clinton speaks, when when George W. Bush, who of, of course there was a lot of both those are very polarizing figures in American history through their through their, each of their eight year presidential eight year run as president with the two terms. It probably wasn't lost on you that Donald Trump isn't there, Richard, but as well, had he been there, he would have been so out of place. We would have cringed if he'd walked to the microphone, whereas Obama, Clinton, Bush, 
they have that presidential feel. It would have been horrifying for America to be ready to see what tr- it was better that he wasn't there. I know there were Democrats that say, well, you should be there. No, no, he he it's at least he's not being a hypocrite and showing up and and speaking at someone's funeral who he clearly didn't respect or or have uh, affection for. Well, Donald Trump shouldn't be invited to speak at anybody's funeral because Donald Trump will only talk about Donald Trump. And the whole point of a funeral is to honor the deceased, the person uh, who you were mourning, uh, not to have people get up and talk about themselves. And that's all Trump cares about is himself. And you could agree or disagree with President Bush on his policies and President Clinton and President Obama, but they were men who cared a lot about their country. They had very different visions of what was good for America, but they served because they cared about the country, not about themselves. And Donald Trump is very, very different. It's all about him. And you could see that in his Twitter feed. You see it in his speeches. So he's the last person you want in the room at anybody's funeral anywhere. Richard Painter, can't tell you how enough how much I appreciate our chat. I hope you have a great weekend, and, and I hope we get to do this again. Thanks for your insight and your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Richard Painter from the uh, Walter Ritchie Profe- uh, School of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota, the Golden Gophers. Shouts to the Golden Gophers. That was a fascinating chat um, with Richard. And uh, if you're wondering, U.S. coronavirus case is now at 5 million. It hit today. Here's Let me lay this out for you. First, I know they have 10 times the population of Canada. I get that. First million in the U.S. took 99 days. The second million took 45 days. The third million took 28 days. The fourth million took 16 days. And they've added another million in under seven days. Are we hitting six million next Wednesday? Seven million on August 10th? What? Where will we be when 2%... Of the U.S. population, two percent of the U.S. population has coronavirus, or had it at a certain point in time. Where will you be when two hundred thousand people are announced to have died from it? I don't know what stops it, and I have American relatives. My sister lives in upstate New York. I bet you eighty percent of the people listening have some tie somewhere to the United States, or you travel there a lot for business, for sports, for leisure. You've been to the U.S. several times in the last 12 months. Not in the last four, but certainly in the previous eight. I go all the time. I lived there nine years. My son was a my son was born in, in Michigan in 2006. And I don't know, e- even post the Trump presidency, and it's going to, it's, it's, a, it's a fait accompli at this point. It's a done deal. I still don't know what America looks like. And I'm I'm absolutely troubled and frightened by both those things. Like this is serious business. I, I you'll never get unanimity in anything. Okay, we we think we're torn apart politically in Canada. Well, yeah, we are, and yeah, we're not. Because you look you look south of the border, and it's nothing in Canada. The acrimony, the vitriol, the anger, the frustration, and again, the pure sadness. It's nothing like what we're seeing in the U.S. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.